Assalamu alaikum, Muhammad. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. This is going to be uh, something that's going to hopefully blow my mind. Um, and, I, and I mean that in a good way. Something that I think a lot of people have questions about. Um, and, and you reached out to me, I think over a month ago, um, really passionately kind of explaining the necessity to have this conversation. Um, so I, I want to jump straight in with asking you your your background in this field because um, we've spoken and you've mentioned that you're not like, you know, a, uh, you know, a psychologist or psychotherapist or anything like that, but that you're a subject expert in this area. So... I want to know a little bit about your journey into um, this specific subject matter and how that came about. Sure, thank you very much, Haseeb. Um, so, uh, who am I? I'm a working professional with a strong educational background and a key interest in psychology. Now, um, I've spent a fair bit of time with individuals that have been victims of narcissistic abuse. So, uh, in some sense, I've had a first-hand experience with a malignant covert narcissist or somebody which demonstrates the traits of narcissistic personality disorder. And what that has meant is I've developed quite a strong specialism in the topic to the extent that it's reasonable to say I am a subject matter expert. And to demonstrate that, I have uh, recently uh, been uh, educating mental health professionals in the field. Now, um, one of the recent calls was uh, over a dozen uh, of individuals uh, which are mental health professionals, ranging from individuals with a PhD in psychology and to the, uh, the upper end uh, individuals which have 30, 40 years of experience as a uh, certified psychotherapist and a psych psychiatrists. And even within that call, there was a lot of uh, you know knowledge gaps uh, with the attendees, and that's something which is frankly and sadly uh, the norm in, in on this topic. Um, very few mental health professionals understand deeply uh, how to spot a narcissist, what a narcissist uh, exhibits in terms of their behaviour once they come across one, uh, and it's often because there's a, a, you know strong um, gap which is missing in terms of knowledge uh, on, on this topic. So um, to, to provide a bit more detail on, you know, the, the extent to which I've researched this, you know, it's it's been a theme that I've uh, spent, you know, over a few years now uh, deeply researching. I've uh, cross-referenced this with a range of experts on narcissism, some US-based therapists, some UK-based ones as well. Uh, read uh, a plethora of books as well as uh, articles and educational resources on the topic with um, plenty of exposure to uh, academic articles as well as uh, more informative uh, video format uh, articles. So um, for myself, uh, I, I found it incumbent on me to try to spread this awareness that I have on this topic because of how profound it is and just how much of an impact it can make on people. Um, so happy to uh, kind of go ahead and, and start off with what's maybe more of a presentation style format, um, explaining the key themes of narcissism uh, and psychopathy um, before, uh, you know, we can, you know, dive in with Q&A and, and, and a more interactive session. Um, how does that sound to you? 
Yeah, sounds good. So I know you've been you've been preparing this preparation. For, uh, so you've been preparing this presentation for a while, um, and I believe it's a presentation um, similar to to the ones that you've mentioned in the past that you've given and delivered to other mental health professionals. Um, so let's do it. Bismillah. I'm all ears. Lovely. Thank you very much, Asib. So to start off, um, you know, I, I'd like to just mention maybe three rough points, right? So one, why is it important to understand more about narcin, right? And within that, there's three points. So generally, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, um, you know, misunderstanding as to what a narcissist is. Uh, I think that's the most important thing. So one is misconceptions. Narcissism is seldom about an individual which is slightly got, you know, got a slightly inflated ego and likes to take lots of selfies. Um, it's not so much to do with the excessive self-love and story of narcissism in Greek mythology. When we are referring to narcissistic personality disorder, or in other terms, pathological narcissism. Um, so, uh, when when in in this call, or should we say this podcast? Uh, I will often refer to narcissists sim synonymously with psychopaths, um, uh, and and that's because really they are quite similar in how they operate, what they they you know what the key characteristics are, and uh, yeah how it's identified within the field of psychology. Um, an example of this is Sam Vakin, who's an expert on the topic, often says there shouldn't really be a distinction between these different profiles. You should probably refer to them as cluster B personality types or dark triad personality types, right? So um, let's jump back into the misconceptions, right? When you think about narcissists, you think of, uh, yeah, people like taking lots of selfies, arrogant people, uh, and or maybe serial killers if we're talking about psychopaths. Um, so what's a more accurate understanding of psychopathy is that there's you know two sides of the spectrum. The violent side of them, the violent narcissists and the violent psychopaths are the ones that become serial killers, right? That's one generalization, uh, which is fair to say. The non-violent psychopaths or narcissists uh, become CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. I mean, there are some stats and studies out there to suggest that, you know, one in um, 20 or even one in, in five uh, leaders or CEOs of uh, Fortune 500 companies uh, are psychopathic in some way or form. And uh, that's where this conversation, this podcast, uh, has a much more interesting twist to it because we really want to get rid of this misconception that narcissists or psychopaths are violent physically. Um, if anything, it's probably easier to, more correct to say they're more, they're less, sorry, they are not violent rather than they are violent if you want to generalize about them, right? So, um, Looking at the reality, right? In psychology, there are a range of personality disorders and there's cluster A, cluster B and cluster C, often known as mad, bad and sad. Uh, the cluster B being the bad, um, often referred to as dark triad, includes narcissism, which is really pathological narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder. Again, this is what we're referring to when we say narcissism and psychopathy and Machiavellianism uh, are some of the key traits within uh, that uh, cluster B personality group. Um, the pathological narcissism we're talking about here is far more prevalent than we think it is, um, or even in terms of psychopathy. So we've heard statistics of you know, 0.5 to 4% of people being 
uh, narcissists or, or psychopaths, but I'll, I'll get into more detail on that. Um, you know, on, on paper, the DSM-4 uh, mentions some of the key traits of a narcissist, which is, per, you know, pervasive pattern of grandiosity, uh, in fancy or behavior, the uh, requirements of excessive admiration, a strong lack of empathy, you know, unwilling or unable to uh, I to truly empathize and, and feel the feelings of others rather than understand them intellectually. Um, the belief that they are unique, they should only be associated with high status people, institutions, and typically they're interpersonally exploitative. Now, this is the definition of a narcissist and or psychopath to some degree uh, within the uh, field of psychology, right? Uh, if you were to describe um, a number of people based on their characteristics, you might think, you know, that they could very much fit this profile. And, and that's ultimately the problem here, is that you, with a narcissist, uh, you can't typically identify them easily based on this criteria. These criteria allow for a medical health professional to diagnose them, but that's not what gives away a narcissist, but rather it's their behaviors Right. That's where, where you can really start to tell if somebody is a narcissist. And that's what we'll get onto soon. Um, and, and, you know, in many ways, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for uh, therapists to use to, sorry, psychotherapists to diagnose patients, right? It's not useful uh, often because a therapist who isn't trained to spot narcissistic behaviors wouldn't be able to recognize what they are, right? Um, so uh, that's because they can put on a fantastic uh, mask uh, as, and demonstrate that they are exactly who their constituents or target individuals would like them to be. So they can put on a show for the therapists. And um, as much as individuals might like to think they'd be able to suss this out, no, you would not if you're dealing with a serious narcissist or psychopath. Um, and, and ultimately what drives them is power, control, admiration and combine that with a dangerous uh, lack of empathy, that's what allows for you know, drastically exploitative individuals. Um, and, and virtually all the abuse in many of the cases is, is not physical. It's all psychological, right? So that's the realm which uh, I'd like to explore in this podcast, which I find more interesting. Um, uh, to give some maybe popular references of which individuals have narcissistic traits or appear to be narcissists or psychopaths, I mean, more recently you've seen or may have seen uh, a show called, uh, my apologies, Tinder Swindler. Um, that's a, a classic uh, narcissist. And in this scenario, this person is not sophisticated at all. A true narcissist, which is more covert in their abuse, would uh, not be as frankly silly or stupid enough to leave such, such traces of evidence as the Tinder swindler has. Um, that's a, a fantastic example of a non-sophisticated narcissist. Um, popular culture references House of Gucci. Um, the Patrizia Reggiani is uh, a classic, again, not super sophisticated narcissist because uh, it's quite evident that she um, you know, acted in such a controlling way. Um, and she, you know, used physical violence to discard her victim, uh, which is a member of the Gucci family. Uh, I think the House of Gucci examples are quite interesting because, and this is typically the case, there's only, you know, really 
there's only two times that a narcissist will get diagnosed. And it's one, if it's court ordered, or two, if they decide to see a professional because of their issues, which they seldom do because they believe there is absolutely nothing wrong with them. And again, why it makes it so difficult to study them uh, in the field of academia. Uh, and uh, just a couple of other references, The Puppet Master, recently on Netflix, it's a another maybe better view on how a narcissist operates uh, better than Tinder Swindler, I would say. And uh, looking at maybe movies, popular movies. I think Gone Girl is probably the best uh, movie to demonstrate just how covert a narcissist uh, truly can be and how much they are able to get away with, uh, frankly. And I, I, I would say, based on some of the anecdotes and stories I've heard of from victims, uh, a movie like Gone Girl is, is frankly not unrealistic at all. Maybe if you remove the blood of the violence, uh, which are effects of Hollywood, uh, it's it's actually something very realistic. Um, and frankly, there are probably millions of individuals around the world which are of a similar kind of uh, character. So um, these are some of the popular references, right? Um, there are others uh, which are serial killers, uh, you know, the Ted Bundy, Anders Brevik, Charles Manson, Ruthless dictators, Saddam Hussein demonstrated this. Um, you know, other popular figures. Uh, you could say, um, you know, ex-presidents um, uh, of the U.S. Uh, there are a couple which demonstrate narcissistic and psychopathic traits, uh, and many cult leaders or individuals in true crime stories that you often see on the TV. Again, um, many of those have clearly narcissistic traits. Um, so uh, before uh, I continue, I'm just going to uh, pause here and just clarify a bit more about, um, yeah, one of, one of these points, if that's okay. Sorry, one moment. Sure. So I think um, just to recap as to why I think it's important for the viewers to to develop an understanding and awareness of this topic. One, these narcissists and psychopaths are dangerous lifelong abusers. They do not change, unfortunately. Two, they're highly prevalent. And three, the sophisticated types are very stealth, difficult to trace. Um, and so combined with the fourth factor of a misunderstanding of what narcissism is in the general population, even in the men medical or mental health uh, professional groups. Uh, I, I think it's possibly, it, it might just be the most important mental health issue um, of our times, I would say. In fact, more so than anxiety, depression, and other quite common, um, uh, you know, mental health uh, problems and difficulties people face. And uh, part of that is because uh, the likelihood of being affected by a narcissist or psychopath is quite high, actually. So Thomas Erickson speaks about this in his book, Surrounded by Psychopaths. And he says that, um, you know, it's more likely to be affected by a psychopath than having a heart attack or being diagnosed with cancer or crashing your car, being robbed in a city on a Friday night or getting sacked from your job. I think everyone who would be listening to this call right now knows at least a few people, right, which have had that happen to them, unfortunately. 
and that would suggest that the there's more incidences of psychopaths um, impacting individuals than even those events that occurred. So, um, jumping on to uh, moving on to sorry, uh, narcissists and, and prevalence. I think um, when we think of narcissists and or psychopaths, and now I'll jump to the kind of more psychopathic focus. Thomas Erickson again in his book Surrounded by Psychopaths lays out that many of us would probably think that there are maybe 0.1% or 0.2% of people are psychopaths. Um, and frankly, in his book, he clearly shows many of the latest studies demonstrate it's two to 4% of people, right, uh, are, are psychopaths. Now that's up to, you know, one in 25 easily. Having said that, there are academics in the field which disagree and say that's too low. John Clark, uh, who's who's written a couple of pieces on on psychopaths and narcissists at work has said that six percent of the male population are psychopaths and two percent of the female population are psychopaths uh, and more interestingly Sigvard Ling a Swedish psychologist also written psychologist written several books has said the figure has long been four to five percent and in his most recent book Everyday Psychopaths it's actually higher than five percent now just take a second there and think, one in 20 people are psychopaths based on that statistic. And that really will make you question just how profound this topic is and can be. And to clarify the distinction between you know, maybe psychopathy and narcissism, if we're being a bit relaxed about the definition, they are... Uh, really, a psychopath is maybe just a worse version of a narcissist, uh, somebody with NPD, um, lower empathy, um, and and yeah, more in, you know even lower, uh, more more inclined to exploit people interpersonally. So the statistics, the facts, the science is there. Psychopaths, you come across them probably every day if you're commuting. I know with COVID, we're not commuting as much, but. <laughs> Uh, you come across psychopaths all the time um, and you just wouldn't know that they are a psychopath. In fact, if you had a psychopath in mind, sorry, if, if somebody you knew was a psychopath, it's much more likely they're somebody you trust greatly, you think is fantastic and lovely. That's what you would think of a psychopath if you're dealing with a real one. <laughs> um, but only the few or a few individuals will typically know if they're dealing with a psychopath. And unfortunately, those are the individuals which are typically close to a psychopath or a narcissist. They invest heavily in their reputation, in how they're seen by others, uh, and uh, their psychological abuse and control and, and all of these negative behaviors are typically taken out on people close to them. And that's what is also quite, quite worrisome. So. I'll just touch upon uh, what you know the different types of narcissists are. Again, uh, we were using narcissists and psychopaths quite interchangeably. Um, there are a range of different frameworks and, and ways to define narcissists. The classic simple one is uh, what the layperson refers to as overt and covert narcissists. Now, the technical phrasing really is the grandiose or overt narcissist and the vulnerable or covert narcissist. Now the grandiose type is 
much more obtuse is in, in your face is is the center of attention they're evidently there um and they're typically easier to spot whereas the vulnerable narcissist actually ironically has a bit of a you know an awareness of their the the defense mechanism which they've created which is this narcissism um which makes them actually more shy and reserved but they're still unfortunately just as um cold and brutal in in how they take advantage of others uh, and so you know those are the the two types which um are referred to very much so in in the acad in academia um but what i'd like to focus on uh, which i find quite interesting is overt abusers versus covert abusers now as i um use the phrase covert narcissist moving forward this is actually in reference to covert abusers, not vulnerable narcissists as such. So this is where it gets really interesting because identifying, recognizing, uh, and, and, and being aware of an overt narcissist is difficult enough. You know, it's, it's a lot of psychological control, uh, abuse, and behaviors which are very difficult for one to even recognize. But where it gets scary is the covert abusers. So, um, you know, those who are aware of overt abuser narcissists may not even comprehend covert abusers. You know, it's 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 that much different. So uh, Debbie Mirza writes a fantastic book on this. It's called The Covert Passive Aggressive Narcissist. And it's possibly the best book on the topic of covert abusers, which are narcissists. So, um, in this book, I'll lay out some of the key tenets, right? Covert abuse is incredibly stealth and sophisticated and will typically be missed by mental health professionals, right? These covert abusers are most dangerous because of their ability to fly stealth and they leverage their intelligence using a meticulous choice of words. Now, let, let's just clarify this. Words. That is how the abuse is carried out words <laughs> so um you know and, and we'll get onto the details of just how profound these impacts can be covert abusers are well-liked charming kind appear humble and empathetic and it's uh, so insidious because the abuse is so hidden now plausible deniability is the covert narcissist's greatest tool because Almost all of their abuse is carried out in a way where if you could never expose them and even calling out one or two behaviors which might demonstrate covert abuse would just appear to be someone overthinking or being paranoid, right? Covert abusers mirror empathy and tears better than Hollywood actors. Hollywood actors have fame and money on the line, whereas a covert abuser has their whole life and existence on the line and they many of them without exaggeration can act better than hollywood actors it's common to be in a relationship with covert abusers for 10 20 30 40 years and not even recognize that you are being abused and if no one else sees it even if you manage to see it you wouldn't even think of talking to someone else about it because it would seem so absurd. It would seem just so unusual. I mean, you'd be seen as overthinking or paranoid or crazy. And so going to a therapist will just re-traumatize you. 
frankly, unless they truly understand covert narcissists. And, you know, what are the reasons for this? In higher education, only the overt type is, is taught. And even then, if we take a look at mental health professionals and understanding narcissism and psychopathy, you know, undergraduate degrees may have a module or so on personality disorders. Within that, there's one of the three main clusters, uh, you know, embodies narcissism and psychopathy. And so you can graduate in psychology with having a very surface level understanding of what narcissism and psychopathy is. And even if you did study it academically in further education, it's very easy and possible for a narcissist to completely fool a therapist, um, you know, unless they truly uh, have had either experience with them or a strong specialism in the topic. I'll give uh, an example. An anecdote taken from Debbie Mirza's book. There was a woman that was going to therapy for about a decade, 10 years for anxiety and depression issues. And uh, she would change therapist after therapist because nobody could help her. But one of the therapists she came across spent 15 minutes talking to her and told her, your mental health issues are a result of being with an abusive partner. And she actually got defensive. Like, what are you talking about? My partner's fantastic. They're lovely. They're great. And slowly but surely, the therapist unraveled how the victim had gone undergone lots of covert abuse. And it's untraceable. It's psychological. It's things that even if I, you know, we were to, to understand it after this podcast, it still takes a long time to truly absorb and recognize it. Uh, and so this woman who's had 10 years of mental health issues, Virtually all of it was a result of being in a relationship with an abusive person, and she had no clue. Um, in fact, she'd probably be told that, you know, she's with one of the nicest people um, that anyone's ever met. They're lucky to be in that relationship. And the reason why that's the case is narcissists and psychopaths invest heavily in their external reputation. That's the most important thing for them is part of their narcissistic supply. Um, so... To give another example, there is a holy hell documentary about the Buddhafield cult where um, the, the head of the cult was a covert abuser or a narcissist. And he had followers which followed him for 20 years or so. Those followers were not stupid, probably as educated, if not more educated than someone on this podcast, because you know there were a lot of smart, kind, talented individuals who were simply convinced this covert abuser appeared to care. And 20 years in, they realized this person is actually just an abuser. And the whole thing is a mask and, and a facade. Um, and, and I think what I, one of the things I found very interesting in her book, Debbie Moses' book, saying that after living with a covert narcissist for a long time, cult deprogramming would be more beneficial than therapy because the effects of ending a relationship with a, co a covert narcissist is similar to the effects of coming out of a cult. That's the extent to which <laughs> abuse from a covert narcissist um, will, will uh, impact you. And really they're abusing you with words, subtle messaging and compliments. Uh, and so, um, you know, 
we must be aware of this topic, especially the covert abusers. And, and, and be cautious, do not take a covert narcissist to therapy. They will use it as a training ground to spot the cracks in their mask and actually increase their likelihood to continue abusing, um, some studies have shown. Covert abusers are master manipulators that could fool practically anyone, especially those who think they can spot people and understand people quite well. <laughs> uh, do not be fooled by your social skills, regardless of your aptitude. If you're dealing with a narcissist or psychopath, it would be extremely unlikely for you to recognize them. So focusing on the impact of narcissists now, at a high level, there are a few things. One is psychological, and that's the most important one, which is most profound. Individuals develop depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, and that's almost a guarantee of dealing with a narcissist, of having a narcissist in your life uh, close to you. Uh, you'd have your reality denied. And in fact, you'd feel like you're going crazy. This is a result of gaslighting. Uh, and on a, on a worse uh, you know, side of the spectrum, many victims develop full-blown mental health issues. So PTSD or CPTSD are very typical of victims of uh, narcissists, especially those that have been discarded by them. Dr. Romani, uh, who's an expert on this topic, uh, you know, even... Uh, posits the theory that people can develop OCD, a full-blown disorder, solely from being around and in a relationship with a narcissist. Um, so many victims may very well be misdiagnosed with general uh, mental health issues, which are really contextual. So it's contextual mental health issues. It's because of the context within your wit in means that you've developed these mental health issues, this depression, anxiety, etc. So psychological impact is, is number one. Number two is the social impact. Narcissists and especially psychopaths will actively cut you off from all of your relationships until you have no bridges of support and they implant enough paranoia and suspicion in yourself and those they can get to to ensure that. Um, thirdly, physical. Um, Narcs could always resort to physical violence, the less sophisticated types. The more sophisticated types ensure they are never, never behave in a way that could be traced. Um, but without a doubt, they would have the same low empathy where murder would be on the table. You know, that is a possibility. Uh, and, and a fourth, which is useful to reference, is financial. Right? So narcissists and psychopaths will utilize finances and are often in the active pursuit of uh, wealth and financial wealth because that's the most tangible form of what we call narcissistic supply so across the board the impact is is huge and all-encompassing now we get to a, a, an important part of this discussion which is the behaviors and tools of a narcissist or psychopath now, I'll run through the glossary, a glossary of terms which are useful to reference. And this is where one can start to truly identify a narcissist or psychopath. And one should only do this in their own mind in that they should not share this openly and easily with individuals unless they are aware of how narcissists operate and work. Because to share this topic with your average Joe or average friend it will be too difficult for them to comprehend. And truly the only people that would know a narcissist or psychopath are those who've experienced them. And that experience will teach you 
um, you know, once you've developed understanding of what narcissism psychopathy is, if you start to recognize again and again, ah, these behaviors, they keep coming up and there's a pathological um, implementation of these behaviors, then you need to start paying attention, right? But otherwise, maybe everyone ha exhibits one or two of these traits every once in a while in their life. So what are the key behaviors or tools of a narcissist and psychopath? Let's look at um, behaviors. So um, there's two types I want to um, uh, focus on. One is the three phases of a narcissistic relationship, or four, and two is the trauma triangle. Now, there are typically three phases, or four, of a narcissistic relationship. Phase one is love bombing or idealization. So in Tinder Swindler, this is the perfect example, classic love bombing and idealization uh, makes his victims feel like um, he's you know, the man of their dreams, does everything for them, is just an absurd fantasy where it encapsulates the victim to truly um, you know, think of the world of them. And that's the most dangerous thing. So this is love bombing or what's also called idealization. Right. So if something feels too good to be true, pay attention, possible red flag. Right. Once they've done that, now you have bought into the idea, like with first impressions, that they're a lovely, amazing person. So then phase two, devaluation. And slowly but surely, uh, they will devalue, chip away your confidence, uh, use all of the tools like gaslighting and others will discuss now to destroy your self-esteem, destroy your confidence, make you a shadow of what you were and ultimately victimize you. And that second phase of devaluation, it will continue for as long as the narcissist can possibly exert what you call uh, or obtain narcissistic supply from you. And when either you have clocked on to what exactly they are, you are or exposing what they are, or you're not giving them what they want. It's phase three, the discard, right? That's when the, the narcissist or psychopath just gets rid of you or tells you to bugger off or, or cuts you off, etc. cetera. Uh, and those are the three phases of a narcissistic relationship. Uh, and the fourth, which makes it a full loop, is called hoovering. So after they've done this, and the discard is one of the most painful things an individual can experience in their life because the narcissist ensures that they destroy the victim psychologically before they discard them, you have the hoovering. And hoovering is after they've done all this disgusting abuse, and typically at the point of discard, you either have no money or no friends or, or nothing to resort to, you're weak, you have nowhere to go. Because the narcissist sets you up in this way, they hoover you back in and say, whoa, okay, I apologize. And, and then they suck you back in and they restart the three phases all over again. And unfortunately, many victims consistently throughout the relationships with the one narcissist and at times with many people in their whole life, they reinvent this vicious circle, right? Uh, and, and typically victims become repeat victims. <laughs> Uh, because they're so normalized, this behavior now. Um, so that's the, those are the three phases of a narcissistic relationship. And I would like to reference now something called the drama triangle. 
the drama triangle is represents three roles that the narcissist embodies in order to maintain control and power their ultimate uh, goal so role number one of the drama triangle is to be the persecutor somebody that essentially abuses you that you are fearful of and your fear is what gives them that feeling of power that's one. Second is the um the victim so they act like the victim and what happens then is you give them empathy and your empathy again gives them power because you then do things on their behalf you feel sorry for them etc just like as you do things when you're fearful of someone and the third is they are the hero this is where it gets a bit more interesting because the narcissist in many instances does superficially good things to gain your trust but also so it appears though wow look how great this individual is and frankly they often create problems and solve them and appear to be the hero and what that gives them is praise which then again gives them their control and power over you uh, and uh, let that let this be clear it's narcissists and psychopaths often create problems invent them and then come out on top being the heroes so point of information if you see somebody who is a narcissist or psychopath and they are often the hero in many situations you could make the deduction each time they're a hero or many of the times they're a hero they may have just very well created that set of problems <laughs> so those are two of the key kind of frameworks for behaviors of a narcissist. Now I'd like to look at the tools. Um, so number one is gaslighting. Gaslighting is the bread and butter of a narcissist or psychopath, right? We're talking about pathological level of gaslighting. Now gaslighting is not maybe what others think of when they've heard of it on social media and so on, or, or uh, that's maybe a, a mild version. Gaslighting comes from a show in the 1920s or 30s called Gaslight. It's about uh, uh, an abusive husband and his partner. So what happens is back then, you know, the, the, the light was powered by gas. So every time um, the wife goes out, the husband switches the gas light down uh, or up. And when she comes back, she's confused. She asks, well, did you switch this uh, down or, or you know what happened uh, you know it's not like it was yesterday and the husband would just deny it's even happening what are you talking about why are you overthinking this i didn't uh, you know <laughs> i didn't do anything it's the same as yesterday and that's one day in so imagine one day in she's probably spent the rest of her evening just thinking oh my am i going absurdly crazy you know uh, what what's happening? You know, I remember that it was definitely um, you know, higher or brighter. Uh, and then day two, he does the same thing. Three, four, and slowly but surely, she absolutely loses her mind. And that's what gaslighting is: is denying someone's reality and making them doubt themselves so much that they very likely lose their sanity. That's true gaslighting. Um, and uh, this is the most 
powerful and, and, and kind of typical tool a narcissist or psychopath uses against their victims, which keeps these individuals in these abusive relationships for decades because you don't know what reality is by that point. You don't trust yourself. You think you are overthinking things. Well, another sign of gaslighting. Uh, to give you an example of just how absurd you know, covert narcissist gaslighting can be, um, there's one anecdote of an individual called Mark who spent, you know, frankly, 10, 20 years questioning his sanity just because he was being gaslighted, right? This, this, it's a, you know, hugely profound uh, psychological tool. Um, one other example is a woman who is, you know, being gaslighted for years, actually made appointments with neurologists because she thought her brain was not working properly. So when we say these, these very small, subtle word, use of words and manipulation, it's not something small. It can actually drive you to a point where you go and get a scan of your brain because you think it's not working properly. That's how powerful gaslighting can be. And then you've got other tools. Flying monkeys is, is, is another fascinating um, tool that uh, narcissists use. So flying monkeys essentially represent the narcissist, right? They're, they're, they're proxy narcissists, individuals that have been co-opted into the narrative of the narcissist and essentially brainwash them. And I frankly, brainwashing is too soft a word to describe just what happens to flying monkeys. Um, flying monkeys, which is taken from Wizard of Oz, is, is you know, that's where the reference comes from. Um, you know, and, and let's give some examples of this. You know, the narcissist or psychopath will co-opt individuals which either have narcissistic traits or are highly empathetic, ironically, uh, to build a case against the primary victim. So. This is all happening, remember, before the victim is discarded in the phases. They needed to, because once you start to see through the cracks of what a narcissist or psychopath is, and they can't control you, they need to control how you are perceived by others. Because that way, if you build what's, say, an insanity case, um, then you can ensure no one believes what this victim says. And by the time that you have actually recognize what a narcissist or psychopath is, they've already destroyed all of your support networks to the extent that no one will believe a word you are saying because they've implemented such a level of suspicion and paranoia in people around you using triangulation and, and fly, you know, the flying monkeys. Flying monkeys are people who are, have been converted into weapons and they will gaslight you by proxy. Um, they, their job is to smear your name to others send you scathing emails, you know, blaming you for everything, possibly testifying you against you in court, sabotaging you, convincing others that you are crazy, actively working in a, in a campaign to convince you are, you know, others that you are insane. And many of these individuals are victims themselves. They are unaware that they are doing this, but they've, they've completely bought into the story that the charming uh, psychopath or narcissist has manufactured. Um, so gaslighting, flying monkeys, two kill tools. Another one is triangulation. This is where narcissists, and this is how they operate often, narcissists like pass usually triangulate. So what we mean here is there's always a third party involved. They, they always bring in someone else. Uh, classic example, if people are dating, for example, or going out with each other, um, they would, you know, a, a narcissistic individual, man might, um, you know, throw very subtle messaging 
to suggest other women are far prettier than their partner is, right? That's a form of triangulation using a third party. Or, uh, you know, they, they, they uh, create competition or rivalry between, say, siblings or uh, colleagues at work. And so triangulation, um, uh, it, it's often about creating, manufacturing is the correct word, manufacturing rivalry, competition, paranoia, suspicion, right, in these victims. Um, and so, you know, that's the third uh, key tool. A fourth one is referred to as baiting or reactive abuse. Now, what a narcissist psychopath often does is they learn your emotions and your buttons. They learn what makes you happy, sad, angry, hungry, whatever it is. Narcissists and psychopaths understand your emotional state far better than you would. And they will use this data against you. One of the examples is reactive abuse or baiting. What this is, is narcissists and psychopaths will constantly trigger you in very subtle ways through messaging that only you can understand and others in public would not in order to trigger you to behave badly or angrily or upset towards the narcissist in a way which then in public appears that you are the problem. You're the one with the anger problem. And this is where they turn around quite perfectly and say, well, look who's got the problem now. You're the one that's acting up, right? An interesting analogy is, you know, if your friend just pokes you in the stomach every day, <laughs> I mean, who cares? It's just a poke, right? It's a friendly poke. But imagine that individual does it for 365 days in a year. After a while, you're just going to be like, back off. Why are you poking me? And in front of others, people will just think, well, why are you getting emotional about it? It's, he's just playing with you. He's being, you know, your friend. He's poking at you. Uh, but this is in a, you know, a, a funny analogy which kind of represents how reactive abuse works. So um, many other key phrases and tools which are important to learn, um, as we said, gaslighting, flying monkeys, triangulation, baiting, reactive abuse, and also smear campaign, which goes hand in hand with the flying monkeys and the discard. When the narcissist and psychopath tries to discard you, they use flying monkeys to smear your name. And uh, they will build full-blown insanity cases and genuinely convert people into thinking that you have developed some insanity. Uh, and, and there are people living amongst us who have gone through this. This is, I know many stories that are quite similar. Um, you know, and so there's a range of other uh, glossary terms I'd recommend anyone interested or keen into understanding this. You're talking about intermittent reinforcement, scapegoating, mirroring, narcissistic supply, projection, hoovering, breadcrumbing, gray rocking, future faking, no contact, projection, as we said before. Now, if one was to uh, you know, suspect that they're in a relationship of this sort, right? Education is the key uh, way to, to, to move forward with this. And it's not scientific as such, but I would say if one watches, say, videos on all of these key glossary terms and sees these behaviors again and again and again, the, the degree to which you feel the similarities, right, and how profound these videos are in explaining the experiences you've had 
would demonstrate the degree to which you've probably been going through this. So the average person might watch a few of these videos and say, ah, I think I see these, a couple of these behaviors with you know, a couple of other individuals. That would demonstrate to me that they fortunately aren't dealing with someone who's you know, a very worrying narcissist or psychopath. But if you come across this stuff, read into it and watch the videos and give yourself time, um, be critical about your conclusions, take months, months off absorbing this information, but still these videos or these resources explain so well things that you just could never comprehend for years, then you're in the territory of mm, maybe you are dealing with someone who's a narcissist or psychopath. So, um, you know, I think a few key last points I'd say is in terms of do's and don'ts. So number one, never expose a narcissist. This is the most dangerous thing you can do for your own sanity, uh, for yourself and your safety. Do not expose a narcissist, right? Do not go to them, go to therapy with them. If you go to therapy with a narcissist or psychopath, the narcissist and psychopath will not only flip the therapist to make them believe you are the problem and again cause re-traumatize you which is typically what would happen unless they specialize in narcissism and psychopathy but it would also give the narcissist an opportunity to find out all of the behaviors that they that their victims have realized are wrong and and mold them in a way where they cannot be identified in the future. It gives them the opportunity to hide themselves better. So those are two key, you know, do not go to therapy with them and do not expose a narcissist. What you should do, one, if you can, is go what we call no contact. As much as you can, cut away from them. Uh, and there, there are many, you know, discussions around to what degree and how this can happen. But the mainstream answer is you should go no contact, detach from them as much as you can. Uh, if not, slowly retract yourself bit by bit from their lives if you truly identify one. What you also should do is find maybe one or two individuals that will truly empathize with your experience and even if they don't believe you, they will listen to you and, and allow you to be heard. Validation is the key thing a victim needs because this whole thing, quite you know, frankly, does sound conspiratorial. So a victim is often sitting there thinking, how will anyone believe this? It's just so absurd. This is like the stuff that happens in movies. Turns out that stuff does actually happen in real life as well. <laughs> so um, education. Uh, so on solutions, number one, education, really understand things. Two, validation. Get validation from either therapists who have experienced narcissistic abuse uh, or friends that might do so. But be careful. Do not talk to people that will deny your reality. You need validation. Thirdly, boundaries. As much as you can, implement boundaries. Uh, and then fourthly, to some degree, uh, no contact is um, one of the key key solutions. So those are some of the key um, tenets or facets of this topic. Uh, I know it's been a presentation format, so thank you very much for listening. But um, yeah, 
Haseeb, I'm I'm happy to have uh, yeah a conversation around uh, anything you found worth exploring or interesting. So I'll, I'll hand it over to you. Thank you, Haseeb. Uh, I mean, no, thank you, Mohammed, because um, that was a, a very very uh, detailed insight into the the subject of narcissism um, and and psychopaths. Um, as we were talking, um, I, was, I was doing a little bit of reading, uh, checking some of the references that you mentioned and stuff like that, but also um, just making some uh, notes for some questions that I had. Um, obviously, it's going to take a while to to process this conversation because, um, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's very intense um, to think about the fact that, like you said, one in 20 people um, will have, you know, will, I mean, one in 20 of us are narcissists slash psychopaths and the, the the part that struck me the most was um the conversation around uh the covert narcissist um and the kind of abuse that kind of they dish out onto people um that could be close to them um but whilst you were talking like there's obviously you know some some of these traits that you're mentioning um that that i guess i mean i would imagine that some people exhibit in isolation um and so the question that i had was is there a scale of this narcissism do you get what i mean like is it like you know the, the, the picture that you painted is quite intense but is there is there like a light version which is manageable um what's the what is there a scale is 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 what i want to know it's a fantastic question. Uh, in fact, I maybe should have mentioned this in, in the uh, presentation. So narcissism in and of itself is a spectrum, without a doubt. In fact, having some level of narcissism is healthy uh, for survival purposes. Um, I, you know, it's, it's intrinsic in us all to have, um, you know, some level of narcissism. Um, we've got... Uh, if I recall, there's a Harvard professor um, who uh, called sorry, who's called Craig Malkin. Craig Malkin, Harvard professor on uh, narcissism, uh, discusses actually everyone needs some level of narcissism. Uh, in that you put yourself forward. Individuals that are too shy have too low uh, narcissism. But there there is a checklist, right? So. There's something called the Narcissistic Personality Inventory, the MPI. And that's the kind of checklist uh, which would determine if someone has the disorder, um, you know, as opposed to just having some level of narcissism. So uh, if you're bored, feel free to test yourself online. Um, but uh, good news if you are listening to this and thinking, oh, my, am I a narcissist? Uh, am I a psychopath? And you're a bit worried. Holy moly, <laughs> this is worrying. Uh, good news for you. If you are genuinely thinking that, it's quite likely you are not somebody which is pathological narcissist or someone with NPD. Uh, narcissists and psychopaths typically have limited introspection. They're incapable of recognizing that they are at fault for things. It's part of their defense mechanism. So um, in terms of answering your question, uh, many people exhibit some level of narcissism. That in and of itself is not problematic. Um, but once you delve into the realm of narcissistic personality disorder, 
it gets quite problematic and it's very difficult to deal with these individuals. Uh, typically, they, they, they will not improve, they do not improve. Um, but certainly, um, you, there are maybe some which are a bit more manageable, some with narcissistic traits, as opposed to having a full-blown personality disorder. Uh, and to be clear, people at times do have these behaviors. And this is why we have to be careful and think about, about you know, the phrase pathological narcissism, pathological meaning it's, you know, they are consistently acting in this way, right? That's where the concern kicks in, is when you see these behaviors again and again and again, and you can see that you are developing some mental health issues as a result. Now, as scary as it is that there are many narcissists walking around in, on the world or psychopaths, um, Ultimately, so long as you don't have anyone close to you who's a psychopath or a narcissist, then you're kind of fine. <laughs> Keep your boundaries. Uh, make sure um, you know you you have those strong boundaries, strong self-respect, and um, you know you should be fine in theory. Uh, but unfortunately, many people who have actually experienced narcissists before go on to be repeat abusers because. Uh, in psychology, often uh, familiarity is what you look for in future relationships as opposed to what is best for you and most healthy. hope that answers the question. Yeah, no, it definitely does. Um, I think it'll put a lot of our uh, listeners' uh, minds at ease. Um, throughout the conversation, um, the presentation, rather, there's this notion, and, and I think we've heard it a lot of times as well, like on social media, you, you've you know, you hear that this, this uh, disorder is not treatable or like, you know, you, you know, the best thing to do is basically stay away. Right. Um, that doesn't, that doesn't sit well with me, uh, because I feel like any issue that a human being has, there is a solution to it. I, I, I believe that God has created us with solutions, you know, to the problems, right. We can't just have this case where it's like, no, no, you're a narcissist. You have this disorder and that's it. Now that's, that's the rest of your life. Cause Basically, that person's like a living, living, you know, person that's condemned to hell, basically, right? Because if they can behave like that, you know, very unlikely uh, for them to make it to heaven. Um, at least I hope so. Um, but, you know, the way I, I, I'm looking at it is, and, and I said this to you as well before um, we had this podcast, was I want to look at possible solutions to this because it's all well, like, you know, it's all well and good saying that the, the problem exists but the ha I just feel like there has to be a solution. So can you shed some light as to what the potential treatments or healing processes for this disorder are? So firstly, I'd like to make a, a point quite clear here. This conversation has a strong shock factor. It may make you think, and start reevaluating all of your relationships. Who do I know that might be a narcissist? Who do I know that's a psychopath? And so on. Um, I'd say be cautious of that. Uh, the, the way in which we discussed this topic was from the angle that we assume someone is a psychopath or narcissist, and then we have the discussion. So let's be very careful not to diagnose people. Let's be very careful uh, not to kind of point fingers and so on. Why 
it's important to have this conversation is because there are individuals who are suffering from narcissistic abuse. And frankly, it's not about even diagnosing the abusers. It's actually about letting the victims recognize what they are going through. That's the most important uh, lesson from the conversation on narcissistic abuse. And it's to empower them to understand how to resolve this issue themselves. Again, not to diagnose a narcissist or psychopath. And you typically won't be able to diagnose a narcissist and psychopath because they are often very covert, uh, quite effective at avoiding um, authorities uh, and uh, will, you know, have no reason to, or seldom will have a reason to go for uh, mental health support themselves. So um, I, I want to make that point quite clear. Um, but if there's somebody who, say, is coming across this material, um, heavily immersed in the topic, is seeing an absurd level of correlation between these materials and an individual that they have been encountering quite closely in their life, then you might have a narcissist on your hands and, and, and be careful. But to answer your question on solutions, uh, I, I know individuals who are victims uh, from a kind of minority ethnic background. And why that's relevant is because going no contact, which is the norm, the main solution uh, that, that across the board therapists and survivors recommend, um, you know, it's it's much more difficult for people of certain cultures to do so because of how intrinsic family or friends uh, connections are. But um, really the solution for a survivor is to still create as much distance as you need to ensure your mental health is strong. However far that is, that is the solution. With regard to somebody who actually has a disorder now, not somebody where just we think might be a narcissist. If we know somebody is a narcissist or they've you know, very clearly exhibited all these traits pathologically and consistently, um, it is quite unfortunate that, that there is no remedy to solve this. Um, and it's, it's initially quite depressing as a conclusion uh, because you know, it, it, well, for the obvious reason, uh, you know, it's, it's, this is one of the most profound things, uh, profound impacts of believing in this um, topic of narcissism and psychopathy. Uh, once somebody has experienced it, they completely reevaluate their understanding of humanity, frankly, maybe even religion, because you then realize there are people who have such low empathy and therefore are so interpersonally exploitative, they will do anything and destroy hundreds of people's of lives just to do whatever benefits them. And to put it simply, these individuals on the extreme end are just pure evil. So one thing that I know survivors have found it very difficult to believe or comprehend is that because they are so kind-hearted, because they are so empathetic, because uh, you know they don't want to believe that uh, somebody could be hopeless, I think one of the biggest realizations is, yes, there are people who are just pure evil <laughs> and they exist and you will not really be able to change them, quite sadly. 
Well, um, that's that's a that's a tough pill to swallow because, like, even even now, like, I'm I'm almost feeling a bit sad for someone with this disorder. Um, and, and like, I'm thinking to myself, like, if a person, for example, I mean, look, we all we're all aware of our negative traits, right? I mean, we're not all, but like, hopefully, we are, right, to some degree at least. I I would like to believe that there are narcissists out there aware of their manipulation, aware of their, you know, gaslighting, um, whether that comes in the form of exaggerating the truth or bending it or, or kind of just like accusing and all this kind of stuff, right? I'd like to believe that some some of them know that they're going through it and that they're struggling with this, you know? And it's something that they they don't want to be um, and, and, and kind of hearing this kind of uh, conclusion that, okay, there's, there's no hope for them. I'm still, I'm still not happy with that. If I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, like I'm not happy with that um, because cause surely that, that, you know, a narcissist like there ex- exists like that, right? Like they know that what they're doing is wrong. They know that, but they can't help it. They may, they may feel compelled to behave that way. Um, based on your readings and stuff like that, does that case study exist? So a, a case study in which they are aware or that they are yeah, able they're to aware and themselves they're, acting? Yeah, like like both, right? So so they're aware of it and they sure. want to actively not be that. Let, let's split that into two. In terms of a narcissist or psychopath being aware, unfortunately, rather than fortunately, they're very aware that they're abusing people. The distinction is they believe they're right to do it. And that's kind of where the grandiose sense of self comes from. That's where they believe they're superior to others. Because if you were to, you know, hurt them ever so slightly, right, they have the right in their mind to destroy you and attack you 20 or 30 times as painful as you have hurt them. Because in their mind, that's how much you hurt them. So are the narcissists and psychopaths aware of their abuse? Yes, they are. Uh, but they are typically they typically believe they are entitled to do it that you deserve it that's that's the thinking process um that a narcissist exhibits when they are abusing you uh, having said that um you you may get some cases where it's on the lower side of the spectrum and with therapy uh, the individual can try to minimize these behaviors but because they are so fragile and weak, um, ironically, these are some of the most powerful people on earth, just for your reference, <laughs> because they're internally so fragile and weak, it's almost only a matter of time until they need to be abusive again to feel good about themselves, right? There's a phrase called schadenfreude, which is kind of pleasure from the pain of others. And narcissists, especially covert narcissists, exhibit this heavily because they're so, their self-esteem is so low, and, and often these people appear to be hugely charming, by the way, um, you know, um, and very confident individuals. But because their self-esteem is so low, they have to step on others to feel better, right? So this is one of the key traits. Um, so it's it's almost only a matter of, of, of time. And I'll give a good example, actually. Um, so there is a TikToker called Lee Hammock. 
uh, and I would recommend anyone going through this to, to kind of flick through their TikToks uh, for very uh, useful short insights into narcissism psychopathy. Lee Hammock is a diagnosed narcissist, right? Which uh, you don't get too many of because they don't like the idea of, of believing they are, have a disorder or an issue. He quite explicitly and, and quite uh, helpfully for victims, as ironic as this sounds, explains just how much pleasure a narcissist gets from abusing people. It makes them feel good. It makes them feel great. And even though he's diagnosed, and even though he's going to a therapist consistently, um, he still can't help the fact he needs to be abusive every once in a while. And so even if you were to watch his videos, which again, he appears like such a lovely person, he has a few where he explains, you can never change me. I will always have this problem. I will consistently and always be abusive. And this is part of my nature. Uh, and uh, Lee Hammock's case is, is quite an interesting one because his therapist essentially convinced him, as narcissists do, they, they need to excel in something. They need to be the best at things, right? It's part of their one of the ways that they maintain their narcissistic supply. Um, his therapist essentially convinced him to um, be the number one narcissist by exposing what narcissists do to their victims. Um, so that's the reason why many victims have been fortunate, ironically enough, to uh, get the closure they needed of the abuse from someone who finally admits what it is to be a narcissist. And uh, for your reference, Lee Hammock is, again, probably one of the least sophisticated and is more of an overt narcissist than a covert narcissist. Um, but still, that resource is there. Lee Hammock's a, a great example of that. You cannot, unfortunately, prevent the those inhibitions that a narcissist has. And unfortunately, it's typically just a delayed response. Um, where... Where does narcissism come from? Like, is it genetic? Um, is it is it like uh, something that can be developed over time? Is it something that, let's say, for example, okay, fine. Let's say he doesn't, he can't leave someone, right? Someone can't stop being a narcissist. Let's say, for example, like at least when they're on the the top tier spectrum. Um, what's the what's the stages of it like in terms of development? Like, what are the early signals as well, like sure. in childhood and stuff like that? Yeah, fantastic question. So I think there's wide debate on this topic. I can't say uh, very clearly what the correct answer is, but I'm leaning towards the nature versus, sorry, the, the nurture versus nature discussion. So it appears as though it's, it's trauma related. So um, let's list out a few of the key possible causes. One is some kind of trauma in childhood especially in the earlier years, right? maybe the attachment years, first four or five years, um, whether the child was abused or heavily neglected, um, you know, that's one, trauma is always a big one. Two, they have a narcissistic parent, um, and that's almost you know, quite often the case. Um, when you have a narcissist psychopath, one of their parents or people very close to them would probably have those traits. Um, uh, three is actually almost being uh, given excessive um, love and care from a parent in the younger ages as well, 
whereby the child does not outgrow the phase where you know re they they what you call maybe theory of mind where you recognize um there that other people in the world essentially matter there are others which experience the same things you do um so that these are some of the theories out there to explain the causes of narcissism or narcissistic personality disorder there is a discussion about genetic predispositions my impression of what i've read so far is it's just it's heavily trauma related and or they would have a parent uh, who's who's narcissistic uh, by background um the the topic of and this is a tangent which we won't go down but i've always been fascinated by the excessive love being a a problem um so a little bit of personal kind of uh insight into this so um i grew up as a middle kid feeling a bit neglected as a child to be fair like as in i've grown up from that phase now and i realized i was i was loved appropriately um thank you mom and dad um <laughs> but I, I kind of used that justification for some of my misbehavior in my teenage years. And I, I think a lot of us can relate to that, right? Like as in it's, it's, it's a fairly uh, typical thing to, to kind of do. Um, but when I grew up, I, I started to obviously meet people beyond my council estate and, and beyond like the poverty circle. Um, and, and I started seeing this thing of, um, Adults, young adults are messed up because their parents love them too much. They, they put them on, on a pedestal too high. They gave them everything that they wanted. And I'm like, yo, what? Like, <laughs> I didn't know that like the other ex extreme of neglect or, or, or like material neglect, let's call it, right? Is, is excess can have like probably longer lasting damage. Um, because almost like when you come from a position of, of, let's say material neglect, right? Like when you feel like, you know, your parents didn't provide enough for you, whatever it might be, right? Resentment towards that because you're poor. You grow up and you realize, oh, actually there's all these various factors that cause that. But when you kind of grow up with like a silver spoon in your mouth, right? And then there's like high level of praise and it's like, you know, the whole world revolves around you. Even when you grow up, you can't, relate to the rest of the world you can't you can't experience the other the other aspect of it like there, there's no you know it doesn't allow for empathy to exist in that space to get what i mean um so i've always found that like a very very fascinating thing and one day i'd love to maybe just do a podcast specifically just on almost loving your children too much like the excessive love um what are some of the um the, some of the things that parents could do um to a detect early on narcissistic behavior um, and B, prevent these traits from uh, developing into a full-blown kind of NPD? Sure. Um, I can't give a kind of, uh, you know, medical uh, or, or official answer to this. I can give my impressions. I would recommend anybody looking for those answers to kind of research with specialists um, with the medical background as well. Uh, having said that, um, you know, I, I, I think one point I'd want to make is you can never diagnose someone under 18 with narcissistic personality disorder, to my understanding. Um, and part of that is because younger people in their teens and even late teens may exhibit some narcissistic traits. Uh, and that's part of growing up 
uh, frankly. Um, you know, when you're younger, you think the world does revolve around you a bit more than we do when we're adults. Um, so you, you won't, you know, the, when you've got a narcissist or, or maybe a psychopath, you'll see either extreme behaviors in those teen years, right? Or that they maintain similar behaviors, you know, into their adult life, right? That their grown adult life. So that's just a point of information to be aware of. In terms of what parents can do, um, you know, I can't say I know the answer to this, but what, what the material out there suggests is ultimately ensure there is unconditional love for your child and, and be you know, reasonably emotionally available uh, and maybe even materially available, but especially the unconditional love factor. Um, that's probably the biggest one. And in line with um, what is, is understood in a lot of the psychological circles to be the most important and um, uh, years for a child, you know, the, the years where the attachment uh, form is, is formed, um, you know, first four or five years or so, I think that's especially crucial for the parents to build a bond, to be emotionally available, uh, to ensure there's unconditional love. And um, those would hopefully kind of help in, in that scenario. Uh, and this is a question I've been asking myself for a while. I mean, anybody who wants children would never want for this to happen to them. But um, yeah, that's that's my impression. Um, um, thanks for that. Uh, I wanted to just kind of ask you uh, a question on, on what you said about unconditional love, right? Because couldn't unconditional love be synonymous with that excessive love that we spoke about? i.e. a child is misbehaving or a child is, um, let's say, when I, when I say child, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, let's say, for example, around the, the age between 11 and 13, I almost find like that those years are actually quite crucial and sometimes get overseen. Um, but like when a child goes from that kind of, in that phase, now they're developing like their kind of more adult identity, right? Like towards when they get when they get older, towards like fifteen and stuff. Isn't isn't unconditional love a little bit problematic in that in in that context? So, let's be clear here. When we use the phrase unconditional love, it's referring to loving your child for who they are as a person rather than um, they, their, let's say, achievements, which a narcissist typically um, is how they view their children. They, they view them as ways to get supply, and it's purely dependent on what you've achieved and how you've behaved in line with what the parent wants uh, in a prescriptive manner. What um, is, is more correct is an unconditional love in that you show love to the child for who they are, um, but a big part of that, if you truly love your child, you would not uh, smother them to the degree that when they act poorly, you would endorse their behavior. And in fact, correctly so, that is, you know, if you do not teach your children to respect others and respect boundaries and, and know what's right or wrong, 
they can very well become tyrants. You know, that's that's part and parcel of this excessive smothering. So it's it's you know that's focusing on the semantics, but true unconditional love is just making sure you're emotionally available and caring for your child, whilst ensuring there are rules uh, that they adhere to, so they can be socialized into society become respectful of others and so on and recognize the needs of others in society. It's that combination that would probably help avoid a scenario like this. Last question. Um, now, we all, we live in families, right? And, and that's not just, you know, Muslims. It's not just like brown people. It, it's that's the reality of, of life. We, we grow up in families. Now, the thing about no contact, right? Like as a solution to dealing with a narcissist. If you have a narcissistic parent, for example, that's not someone that you can, you know, no contact, right? At least for like the most part of your life when you're young, maybe when you become an adult, you move out, fine, you can do that. Right. And, and that's, that's reasonable, right? Even from an Islamic perspective that if a parent is, you know, becoming a hindrance to your, uh, spiritual well-being it's reasonable to have a safe distance from them, not like being disrespectful to them, but like maintain a, a, a distance from them. But then there's other relationships, like for example, your children, or for example, your, uh, your spouse, right? And these are relationships that no matter how old you are, you can't really escape from um, unless you break away from the family, unless you actually, you know, settle for a divorce or, um, decide to live apart or whatever it might be. Now, in that situation, what does one do? Yeah. So, I would be cautious to give blanket advice on this because it's very specific to your, say, narcissist, your environment, the extent to which it's impacting your mental health and, and your life. And I would, my advice would be do as much uh, as you can to get the best of both, which is maintaining the mental health, maybe creating enough distance, but not fully excluding yourself. But that's something you'd have to decide what your appetite is and to what degree the relationship is impacting you or important to you. Um, so I, I'd like to give an a small anecdote. So Robert Hare, who is the father of the psychopathy checklist, essentially the tool used to diagnose psychopaths. Uh, so you can imagine this individual really knows his stuff on psychopathy, right? So he himself has had times where he sat down with diagnosed psychopaths, often they are not, and he's talking to this diagnosed psychopath. And after a few of its sessions, even he admits he gets manipulated by the psychopath. I mean, if Robert Hare isn't able to protect himself for a psychopath or a narcissist, there's not really any chance for anyone else to. So depending on, on the severity of the individual you're dealing with, you may very well have to make some decisions which you did not want to make. I won't say I condone that, but I can empathize with people having to make these very difficult decisions. 
there wasn't another example that I actually came across uh, speaking to someone else. There was a woman who, and, and no judgments here, because I don't know what their situation was. She um, had a newborn child, maybe one, two years old, sorry, uh, with a narcissist. And at, at that stage, one, two years old, uh, she recognized who the individual was. And, um, you know, this is a mother that there, there is, you know, you could make the argument that a mother is maybe more intuitively connected to the child. You know, you've spent nine months um, of, you know, your body, your energy, your nutrients, your, your resources, you've dedicated purely to this living uh, entity, which you then give birth to, um, you know, a very difficult process. Um, so you've given a lot really to sacrifice of yourself for the creation of that individual. And this woman went no contact to the degree that she basically abandoned her son because of just how powerful um, it uh, the narcissist that they were dealing with was, that they would destroy their psychology so much that they would actually sacrifice their own son and leave. So um, I, I really wish that's not the case for anyone that's going through it. But what I what I would recommend if one feels they need to make some tough decisions here is to create space. So this is a softer version of no contact. So you need to create safe spaces, whether that's physical and or mental, where if the abuse increases, you can kind of revert to the safe spaces. And so uh, once... Um, the, if the abuse is reduced or minimalized or the person's behavior improves and enhances, you can re-engage with them and build a relationship. But at least that way you have um, somewhere, a place of sanctity to resort to, right? You don't want to be trapped. You need to create these safe spaces and then try your best to, to manage the individual, try your best to not completely cut off. And I would always recommend that before going no contact, but in extreme cases, you may have to kind of set up a new life almost. I don't really know how to end this podcast or this conversation. <laughs> uh, I, I've got an interesting ending. I was speaking to a friend of mine who had has an awareness of this topic, has actually a relative who's gone through it. And they told me, quite interestingly, the realization of the existence of narcissists and psychopaths gave them more faith in humanity. Why? Because now you trace it back, you could make a pretty strong argument that the majority, if not the vast majority, of some of the most heinous crimes that we've seen committed by humans or by individuals that exhibited narcissistic or psychopathic traits. And so, in a sense, <laughs> it gives you that faith that actually, with the exception of these people with these disorders, which are quite unfortunately evil, um, actually, those which are the average human, uh, aren't so bad after all. 
And there's actually a lot more hope for those individuals that don't have, say, this disorder. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. I guess you got to make <laughs> you can't find the silver lining uh, to some degree. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I understand that. And um, uh, for our listeners, uh, I, I hope this conversation has been uh, helpful. Um, hopefully, it's, it's shed some uh, deep light onto the the subject matter. Uh, Muhammad, I'd like to thank you for your time. Um, I know this has a very, been a very long podcast. You've brilliantly presented uh, a, a, much, a, a very, very deep insight into this. And I think it's very important because, you know, terms like narcissism and gaslighting and all of this stuff, you just see it flying around Instagram and, and social media just like nonstop. Um, but there hasn't, there, there isn't like, you know, at least I haven't come across like a deep body of content uh, such as this podcast or a presentation where, you know, you, you someone provides that kind of clear, uh, deep insight into it. So thank you so much for your time. Um, if you have any last words of advice, uh, please feel free to, to share that with us. Thank you very much, Haseeb. It's been a pleasure to, to be able to share these insights with the viewers and listeners of uh, TMV and, um, you know, on, on a personal basis, as we know, this topic is quite controversial and requires a fair bit of anonymity and privacy for anyone involved. But if there are, in extreme cases, individuals that feel like they want to get in touch um, to, to kind of get some of that validation, possibly from myself, that might be something that we can, we can try and help with. But, uh, you know, last, you know, pieces of advice, I would say, is... Um, Pay attention and most importantly, trust your intuition. In fact, that is the best way to determine um, what is right or wrong for you um, when you interact with people. Trust your intuition and hopefully um, all will be well and uh, we'll leave it at that. Thank you very much, Hazib. You're welcome, Mohammed. If there's uh, any links that you can provide actually uh, towards any like helplines or forums, uh, for people that are um, experiencing this, um, I think that could be quite useful as well. So um, if you send those to me, then I'll include those in the description uh, for this podcast. Uh, but thank you very much, Muhammad. Again, Asalaamu Alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So that was quite an intense podcast for myself personally, um, especially the kind of idea of there not being a solution per se for someone that is struggling with um, narcissistic personality disorder. Um, so it's twofold, right? Because obviously you've got the situation where the person themselves is the narcissist and I almost have a sense of empathy towards them, right? Because it's very possible that they would be in that situation trying to resolve it or aware and they may not want to be that way. Um, and I, I'm not comfortable with the idea of just condemning someone as evil and going to hell. Um, that being said, um, Allah guides us all and he tests us all individually. So what might be going through their mind and what might be right and wrong for them might be slightly different to us. Whilst we don't necessarily have the issue of um, not wanting to hurt other people, we, we may not necessarily face that as a daily challenge to not manipulate other people for them it is so on a day for example where they don't manipulate someone else or they don't hurt someone else maybe Allah accepts that as an effort from them towards 
trying to be a better person. If you have any questions about narcissism um, or if this podcast has potentially unraveled something, maybe a close family member, maybe a friend of yours, you might feel uh, have these issues. Obviously, we discussed the advice in terms of not approaching them with this information. Um, and we discussed what measures you could take to create that distance uh, to be able to manage your own mental health if it is affecting you. If you have any questions about this though and you want to reach out to Muhammad, um, then feel free to drop me an email. I've left uh, a link for my email in the description below and inshallah we can uh, touch base. Um, I can put you in touch with Muhammad and um, we can uh, hopefully figure this out together. That's it from me today. Um, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I definitely did. I feel like it was something that has really opened my eyes up um, to, to, on a whole another no, level, really. And uh, inshallah, we pray for everyone, everyone's mental health. We pray for everyone to, inshallah, raise children that are away from such, I don't even want to call it a defect, a disorder. I don't know. Um, but, you know, let's just pray that Allah protects us from such things and keeps us sympathetic, keeps us kind, uh, and keeps us genuine uh, in the pursuit of his path. I mean, that's it from you guys. Assalamu alaikum. Barakallah fiqh. See you next week.